Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. We chanted very loudly, we own the night. Now is when you need to be hiring the best. You think it's constitutional? Yeah. There are just some bad people in the world. That's right. That need to be put away. And you can't solve every problem. You can't cure everybody. Was an explanation offered as to why they disregarded the letter? That's something I haven't seen. Um, I know that the city's explanation is often like, you know, somebody messed up. Mm -hmm. Is that an explanation that a judge would take kindly to in your experience? Well, it might back him off of the most extreme. I'm Sarah Fenske. A bill in the Missouri legislature poses bringing in a special prosecutor to handle crime in St. Louis. That's directly challenging the power of the elected circuit attorney. Meanwhile, St. Louis may pay out one of the largest protest-related settlements in the country after more than 100 people were swept up in mass arrests. The interim police chief proclaimed that police owned the night. Do lawyers always get the last laugh? Well, let's ask some lawyers. Today is our legal roundtable, and three top attorneys join us to dig into some high-stakes matters that are now playing out in St. Louis and in Missouri. And today, we're joined by former St. Louis Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce. She held the job from 2001 to 2017. She is now a principal in the consulting firm Veracausa Group, LLC. She works with prosecutors around the country in areas such as communications, leadership, and racial equity. Jennifer, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And we are also joined again today by Bill Freivogel. He's an attorney and a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Bill, welcome. Hi. And finally, we're joined today by Eric Banks. He's a former city councilor for the city of St. Louis. He's also an attorney and mediator at Banks Law. Eric, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we have a lot of important things to talk about today. It has been a busy month in local legal circles. But first, we've got a major update on a case we talked about on this show last June. And this is the wildly improbable story of a Missouri woman who sued her boyfriend for giving her a sexually transmitted infection after they had sex in his car. And she somehow managed to get a judgment from circuit court that Geico, his auto insurer, had to pay her $5.2 million. Well, the appeals court in Missouri ruled that Geico was on the hook. Those headlines were eye-catching, but the Missouri Supreme Court had the last word. And this past month, they struck down the appellate court verdict. Bill, what was the Supreme Court's reasoning on this one? Well, the, the reasoning was, they said it was very simple, and it really is, that, that Geico had a statutory right to intervene. They weren't allowed to intervene before the, judge, before the judgment, and so the uh, judgment was... So, so the lower court's decision to approve the judgment was uh, thrown out and sent back to the to the court. So this came out of um, a mediation 
that had happened. It did. There were, so the, both the, the, the man and the woman agreed to arbitration. They agreed to uh, arbitration. Maybe you... a cozy <laughs> deal there. But, uh, and then the, uh, the, the arbitrator awarded the, the woman the large uh, award, and the court approved it. And now that court approval has has been voided by the Supreme Court. Yeah, and it turns out this whole time, Geico was over here saying, hey, hey, you can't (laughs) approve this. We deserve the right to intervene. And the Missouri Supreme Court is saying, yes, plainly, they did deserve the right to intervene. It seems so simple now. How did the appellate court get this wrong? Eric, thoughts on this? I think the real decision had to do with whether or not the arbitration award was going to be upheld. I don't understand the facts of this case. Um, Five million (laughs) dollars? I mean, who carries five million dollars worth of car insurance? So how can the insurance company be made to pay an amount that's over and above the coverage limits? Yeah, I mean, there's so much about this case that that simply boggles the mind. Jennifer, what's your take here? Well, Sarah, I thought this was a family show. <laughs> I mean, fair. Let's try to keep it clean for public radio. Um, I, I too, am shocked. I feel like we're missing something here with the five point two million and the uh, the insurer not even invited to the party. Yeah, uh, where they uh, get assigned that level of liability it just doesn't make sense to me. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the arbitration where she convinced the arbitrator to make an award that high. Um, I just, I don't know, you, you have this idea in your mind of what kind of person would be having sex in the car, and that doesn't square with the level of advocacy that must have been displayed there in the arbitration. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm just making assumptions. Yeah, I mean, we've all seen, like, these heart-rending cases, you know, absolutely terrible things happen to people that they've done nothing to get themselves into these jams, and then some, some terrible corporation screws them over. It's kind of hard to see with the fact pattern here that, that Geico is responsible for what happened. And, and $5 million worth. Yeah. You know, I just can't. I can't understand that. And I guess the, you you all correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess that arbitration award isn't dead. I mean, no, the case I don't goes think so. it's still alive to be considered by the lower court on this remand from the Supreme Court. So now this lower court, are they going to be looking <clears throat> at this and saying is 5.2 million dollars fair? Is that part of what the circuit court is going to try to to answer here? Well, maybe, but you know, there's a footnote at the end of uh, at the end of the Missouri Supreme Court decision that says. Uh, it'd be, uh, you know, it'd be premature for them to say what the lower court, what Geico could argue mm-hmm. in the lower court. So I don't know exactly what that lower court will, uh, you know, what that reconsideration will look like. Yeah. This case is not dead yet. No. <laughs> no. It's interesting, Eric, I know you now do a lot of mediation in your practice. I find myself wondering about the role of these arbitrators. Are they almost like mediators? Like a, an attorney can take this on? Well, Mediation is voluntary and it is non-binding. Arbitration is usually governed by arbitration clauses and contracts, and the arbitrator's decision is binding. It is binding. So that gives you awesome power. Who gets to be an arbitrator? Yeah, who selects the arbitrator? Sorry, I'm, I'm curious as to how this arbitrator was selected. Well, I don't know how this arbitrator was selected, but generally any attorney that two people can agree on, a Uh plaintiff and the defense, is good for it. Now, there are various courts that have um, 
panels. Um, the federal court has a panel. St. Louis County has a panel. I'm not sure if St. Louis City does or not, where if you are, after you submit your paperwork, your documentation, your bona fides, you can be placed on the panel and then selected by the parties who get this list. But generally speaking, arbitration is a lot harder than mediation because mm -hmm. you have to actually make a decision in arbitration. Mediation is kind of touchy, touchy, right. feely, feely. Come on, <laughs> let's get along. Do you think that this arbitrator's arbitration business has gone up or down as a result of this? Well, given the fact that I don't know of anybody who knows who this arbitrator was, yeah. I suspect it's about to say state the same. <laughs> yeah, boy, it, when you hear that the two adverse parties just have to agree on the arbitrator, you start to wonder about this boyfriend and girlfriend that went into litigation where yeah. she's suing him and they got to choose their arbitrator. You start to understand how we may have reached this point where our panel is almost speechless with how bizarre this whole thing is. Very smart. Very smart on their part. You know, um, again, I don't want to have preconceived notions about the kind of people that have sex in their car as opposed to other places, but I don't know. It just... It's just so interesting. It is a really interesting case. And you may have questions about this case. Maybe you're a professional <laughs> arbitrator and you want to weigh in here. Our phone lines are open. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. <clears throat> you can also send us a tweet at STL on air. We're going to remain on top of this case. Let's just say this one is now in my sights. I need to see <laughs> how this one resolves itself. But for us here today with our legal roundtable, some other big news. Yesterday, the Post-Dispatch reported that the city has reached a settlement in a class action lawsuit over its kettling action in September of 2017. Protesters were rounded up in mass arrests in downtown St. Louis. Some were beaten and tear gassed. The city would pay $4.9 million according to a proposed settlement that's now pending before a federal judge. That ends up being about $58,500 per arrestee. The city has also separately settled with a few other people. That brings its total bill for protesters that night to $5.2 million. And then you want to add in the $5 million awarded to an undercover cop who was beaten that night. That's Detective Luther Hall. You're at $10 million. That's a staggeringly expensive night for the city of St. Louis. Eric, what do you make of this settlement here? Well, I'm in favor of it. Um, and I think that the only way to get the city fathers and mothers to address this very serious problem of police brutality is to hit them where it hurts the pocketbook. So, uh, and the city councilor's office didn't just roll over on this. So they, you can believe that they fought it vigorously. They did fight hard on this. So, this went up to the appellate court. Some of these cases, I don't know if the, the particular class action, but some of these individual cases, they tried to say the officers should have immunity here, all, all sorts of things. That makes it almost a, a stronger victory. Yes, I agree. Bill? Well, I, I also favor the settlement. I think this night in St. Louis was infamous. Um, <clears throat> what the police did was wrong and illegal. Uh, what they did to Luther Hall, what the, some of those officers did to Luther Hall. This particular kettling, you, know, you can watch it on the video on the Post-Dispatch website where the four lines of police officers Converge from four different directions to 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 uh, capture the group of people, about a hundred people, uh, around uh, Washington and Tucker, uh, move in, hitting their nightsticks, 
they later take take selfies of owning the night, mm-hmm. as the, oh, the acting chief said the next day. Um, and uh, this was Ill- illegal activity, uh, and uh, this was the uh, the court the court decisions say that these hundred or so uh, protesters were uh, were acting peacefully. Yeah. And they had not. There had not been any immediate warning of an unlawful assembly. There, there had been a warning a couple of blocks away, a couple hours earlier. Yeah. <laughs> but but they they were not unnoticed that 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 they were uh, engaging in an unlawful assembly. You know, people residents were just walking by and got caught up, got caught up in it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad that the city has to pay. I'm sorry that the city is not admitting. To, to no wrong, but I know that's what's required to get the settlement. So I interviewed the then city councilor Julian Bush in 2018. I went back and found this quote because I remember at the time, and this was a full year after this night that the police allegedly owned, that the city thought they didn't have much liability here. This is what he told me. This is a direct quote from 2018. He said, people have brought claims, but these people were only kept in custody a day. We are not anticipating large payouts. Wow. Jennifer, what do you think he got wrong there? Ooh, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm hesitant to to criticize Julian Bush's reasoning. I know that as a judge, he was very smart, sure, um, very thoughtful, um, by the book kind of guy. Um, I can't imagine how he thought that, and and perhaps he was not thinking in terms of Luther Hall. I mean, that's easily you know that's half of this, sure. And, and that's a national story, how an undercover officer was beaten. I think we need to, you know, just looking at this in the larger context of the, what's going on in Memphis right now and everything else. Um, I saw Bill Bratton this morning on the news, and he said, the problem is, is that police are really having a hard time hiring right now. They're, they're understaffed. People don't want to be police officers anymore. They're underpaid. And now is when you need to be hiring the best in this job, people who can really un- appreciate the nuances of it and and use appropriate tactics and and, it, and th- people are not flocking to this job as they did in the past, and so that's very troubling because I don't know how we change the culture in policing, not just in St. Louis but everywhere, uh, without having good people wanting that job. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I I understand, Eric, where you're coming from when you say it takes this kind of verdict to get their attention. But I'm thinking, has this gotten the attention of the people who could do this same thing? Or does this only get my attention as a taxpayer? Jennifer? Can I, I mean, I, I agree that it's a big verdict. In fact, I think it's the largest from a protest um, nationally, I think I read. Yeah. But... Um, the city has paid out tons of money over the years uh, in with respect to actions taken by police officers. And uh, back in the day, I didn't even know about it. I remember when I was circuit attorney, and all of a sudden I'd be reading an article in the Post-Dispatch about a huge settlement that the city paid, and no one had ever even come to me with an incident saying, will you look at this and see if it's criminal in nature? So I, I believe that that has changed now. But so much money has been paid. I hope you're right. I hope this gets somebody's attention. But I have to wonder because it hasn't in the past. 
Eric, I'm going to give you the last word on this since we're, we're kind of wondering about the hope that, that you might feel coming out of this settlement. Do you think the St. Louis police can learn from this? Yes, I do. Yes, I am the eternal optimistic in that regard. So I believe in looking to the future, not to the past. And I believe that this is going to be a um, painful but necessary lesson. So attorney Javad Kazali, who um, handled this class action lawsuit, has handled a number of these individual cases that he's brought to settlement as well. He told me just just before the show, there are 10 more Stockley lawsuits pending. So yes, this is the largest um, payout that we've seen for any police protest. Um, Javad also says he's never seen a class action settlement in America that pays out this much per person pertaining to a police response to a protest. And there may still and likely still is more to come. That's a sobering thought right there. We do need to take a quick break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back to our Legal Roundtable. I'm Sarah Fenske. I'm here with Bill Freivogel, an attorney and professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Uh, also, Eric Banks, a form- former city councilor for the city of St. Louis and attorney and mediator at Banks Law, and also former St. Louis Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce. She held the job from 2001 to 2017. She's now a principal in the consulting firm Vera Causa Group, LLC. We've been talking about the large payouts um, Um, from those uh, police protests in 2017, protests against police brutality. I'm going to go to the phone lines. Tom is calling from St. Louis with some context for us. Tom, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hello. Yes, Tom, hi. Thanks for joining us. Uh, You wanted to share some thoughts about this We Own the Night? Yeah, so um, people who are old enough might remember when uh, Amadou Diallo was killed by the street crime unit in, in New York City in 1999. And they were one of these sort of uh, paramilitary police units that that uh, went around and did stop and frisk in New York. And they had a, t- a T-shirt of themselves throwing black men onto a head of a squad car. And the slogan on the T-shirt was, we own the night. Yeah. And he was, you know, one of the first high-profile unarmed black men to be killed by police in these kind of circumstances. Well... The reason that slogan got brought up in St. Louis is that the first night of the Stockley protests, when the demonstrators were around uh, Mayor Krusen's home, um, when the riot squad came in, we chanted very loudly, we own the night. You, the protesters, were saying that the to the police, protesters. sort of turning their slogan on their he- on its head. Right. And I think the police chief unwittingly said, no, 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 we own the night. Oh, interesting. Wow, that's some interesting backstory. Tom, thank you for sharing that. Even as someone who was actively covering all that, I never connected those things. It kind of makes sense, and I think Lawrence O'Toole infuriated a lot of people when he said that. Um, Tom, thanks so much for that call. Jennifer, this is just some really sobering history. Um, and Yeah. yeah I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just this bigger picture here. Well, I mean, 
I have spent my career working with police officers, and I I know, and it's often said that this is a a portion of police officers who are engaging in this activity. I mean, the the majority, I believe, of police officers, at least in my personal experience, are are very very dedicated public servants who do the right thing for the right reasons. The problem is, is we're just you know we're with the pay and the conditions and things like that, we're getting more and more people leaving the departments. Um, I don't think that they have a, quote, jump out uh, squad in the city anymore, um, according to my research last night, calling people. Um, But um, there's going to be problems until we really figure out a way to get get the kind of people into this job and get the right kind of training on the right kind of tactics. And I think they're in the, they're in the same problem situation in Memphis as well. Yeah. Bill? Well, I, I agree with everything that uh, Jennifer just said. Um, I, I, I do think that Memphis has, has, I hope that it's the precedent that the national media has been painting it uh, to be, where, you know, the very quick response, the chief there, uh, like she was suspicious of the st- of the story the night that the that it happened and got on it right away and this very quick response instead of just things drawing out and drawing out mm-hmm. forever and then I guess the Scorpion Squad that was involved uh, you know these sort of special police squads sometimes are the ones that are involved in these situations I know in St Louis the the the, the, the squad that conducted no knock raids oftentimes were involved in in, in some uh, questionable activities. So the the police tactics, I think, also are something that that, that are, are worth looking at. Yeah, for sure. So again, just a very sobering subject. I got to bring this back to a non-sobering subject because we heard from Tim in St. Louis who has a question about our Geico topic. <laughs> A very different $5 million verdict that I don't suspect people are going to see $5 million on. Tim writes, how is an auto insurance company liable in this kind of situation? If someone is arrested for bank robbery in his car, is the insurance company liable? Eric? No, and the list goes on. I mean, <laughs> let's say that I am driving um, through the drive through window at the local restaurant, and I buy a cup of coffee for my passenger, and I drive away from the restaurant, and some of the coffee spills on my passenger's hand. Well, is that the type of matter that is envisioned for insurance policies? No. So, But yet, does that mean every now and then an insurer could end up on the hook if the wrong arbitrator is involved? Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> I'm learning some things about the law today. I can see how you were Jennifer Joyce's law professor back in the day. That's Interesting right. side note. One yes. of my best professors, for sure. I love that. There's good connections on this show. Okay, we got to talk about another serious thing. I'm going to take it back away from car sex. Um, <laughs> a bill proposed in the Missouri legislature would take on the St. Louis Circuit Attorney. The Missouri Independent says the bill by Representative Lane Roberts of Joplin would allow the governor to appoint a special prosecutor in the city of St. Louis for five years if the governor determines that, quote, a threat to public safety and health exists in the city based on, quote, reviewing various relevant statistics. So the thinking seems to be just if the crime rate is high enough here that we end up with a special prosecutor who could take over potentially a big chunk of this job from what I'm reading. Jennifer, what do you make of this? Um, Well, I really believe that the, legis- the the 
guy, the gentleman from Joplin who proposed this legislation, by all accounts, is a, a legitimate, really thoughtful guy and a good legislator. But he's really misinformed here. I know he spent some time trying to put this together. Um, I'll assume for the sake of argument that his heart is in the right place. But it is a disastrous piece of legislation. I could not be more opposed to it. So this legislation says the special prosecutor would have, quote, exclusive jurisdiction to prosecute certain offenses, including murders, assaults, robberies, hijacking, other violent offenses. They would be given a budget to hire up to 15 assistant prosecuting attorneys, 15 staffers. It seems like this would literally usurp the entire power yeah. of the elected circuit attorney. I, I, There's not enough time in this hour broadcast to list all the problems, but just top line, do we want to create a large uh, prosecution authority unelected by the city of St. Louis, um, accountable to no one, basically. Do we want that? I don't think so. There's a reason prosecutors are elected, and they're elected locally in most states. Um, but the, the real problem with this is that it's not necessary, okay? And, and I, I do not publicly comment on the circuit attorney's office. So I'm going to assume for the sake of argument that what they're saying is the reason they filed this is correct, okay? But that's not my personal feeling. I'm not getting into any of that. But um, there's two ways that you can remove a circuit attorney. And those are set forth in the law very clearly. So there is no need to create this behemoth monster agency that's going to create cost millions and millions of dollars for the taxpayers and probably fuel endless amounts of appellate litigation. Um, the two ways are, number one, the voters, okay? To and get them to vote this person out. Yeah, it's kind of old-fashioned, but um, that's how we do. Um, and number two, there's a quo warrento process, which is, I believe, Chapter 531 of the Missouri Statutes. And that basically is, it's little used, but it's on the books. And I know about it because under that law, if I want to, say, remove the recorder of deeds, or if the, if the recorder of deeds isn't her, doing her job or somebody else, it's on the prosecutor to bring that action called a quo warrento action. And it creates a, he, a hearing, an evidentiary hearing, kind of like a trial, where you, you really have to prove that that person is not doing their job. And it's filed in circuit court or the Supreme Court, and the judge makes a ruling. Um, that is something that's in the law. And if the prosecutor is the one that's, that is uh, questionable as to whether they're doing their job, the AG can file it. Any citizen in St. Louis can file it. I mean, and, and if you really think that, that she is not doing her job, again, I'm not making an opinion on it, but if you really think that, then prove it. Yeah. Because you're disenfranchising the entire city when you just remove someone like that or take away, you know, the meat and potatoes of their their work. Yeah, I mean, there's this process. And it's interesting, as much as a former Attorney General Eric Schmidt seemed to be casting a lot of shade on Kim Gardner, there is a mechanism here he could have used Yes. And never did. I do not understand it, except that maybe he didn't know about it, but I find that hard to believe. It was uh, prosecutors during Prohibition time were quoted a lot because they had said that they weren't going to prosecute people who were serving alcohol or whatever, and so they got removed a lot. But um, it hasn't been used against prosecutors since, but it's there for uh, this exact purpose. 
And I mean, it's a high standard and it should be a high standard to overturn the will of the people. But creating this whole huge thing that's just going to, you know, now he says he's going to spread it out to prosecutors around the, um, the state. Well, you know, I think it's pretty clear who he's aiming this at. And uh, rightly or wrongly, it just it just seems to me to create huge problems for and it's not necessary. Eric, um, Jennifer's kind of giving this guy the benefit of the doubt. He's saying that he's doing this uh, because he's concerned about how things are operating in St. Louis. Do you give this guy the benefit of the doubt? No, I don't. I think this is a thinly veiled attack at Kim Gardner. And right-thinking people in the city of St. Louis should oppose it. There's certainly a lot of people who have some concerns about things, about how that office operates these days. And I know, Jennifer, you, you've made a very good point of reporters of saying that's not something you're going to talk about. Um, Bill, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, it, it is true that there are ser- serious questions that have been raised about Kim Gardner's handling of the of the office. Uh, I wrote a little bit about this a year ago. And, you know, just just things not happening. Uh, and even her uh, supporters are concede that she hasn't been everything they were they hoped for. Um, uh, but I, but I do think that this is a uh, and it's worth noting that she's won election twice. I mean, they, the, 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 the folks making this argument in St. Louis m- tried to make it uh, in the last election, and she won big. Uh, so that's pretty important to listen to. Uh, and I, I mean, I think this, this, this bill it probably will pass, and it probably is constitutional. You think it's constitutional? Uh, yeah. I mean, main reason I think that is I asked Mike Wolf last night. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Thought. Well, we can, we can hold up now. <laughs> Mike, Mike Wolf is often right. I'm not, I was thinking, oh, this is just one well, of these I things that will never you know, hold up. Uh, separation of powers or right. something like that. And he said, no, he thinks probably uh, if, particularly if they get past this sort of special legislate provision kind of If they made challenge. it more broad-based. Bo- more broad-based. Jennifer was saying, it sounds like in, from what right. you've been hearing down from Jeff City, they're trying to at least make it look good on that front. Is, is that sort of your take, Jennifer? Yes. It, and um, so we're going to, you know, it's these large government Republicans, you know, when, when does it end? <laughs> um, they're going to create this whole big, giant, 30-person office. The, the salaries are higher than the, the circuit attorney's office now, so they'll be able to to compete effectively against the circuit attorney's office. If I'm a defense attorney, the very first client I have who's convicted by a prosecutor in this new special unit, I'm going to immediately tie that case up with appeals forever because I'm going to argue that it's not legitimate, that's not the you know elected prosecutor. And I mean, this is going to cost the taxpayers in Missouri so much money, and it's just a completely needless thing. I cannot understand why they would want to go this route, assuming for the sake of argument that they're correct in their concerns. Why not go an easier way? Is it because they feel like they can't prove it in a quo action? I don't know. This this is part of something that's going on all around the country. You know, Kim Gardner is one of these quote unquote uh, 21st century prosecutors, uh, progressive prosecutors, uh, who you know want to have more diversion and less bail, and 
there's a big pushback. I mean, uh, Pennsylvania is trying to uh, impeach. Pennsylvania impeach yeah. Larry Krasner, mm -hmm. who, by the way, was born in St. Louis. Uh, good, <laughs> good little side note there, Bill. Yeah. And uh, the, 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 uh, there was recall of the San Francisco uh, prosecutor. The, the L.A. prosecutor barely avoided a recall uh, uh, process. Uh, so it's part of a larger a larger hole. <laughs> so I want to talk briefly about one more thing related to prosecutors before we move on to some other cases. Um, just a few years ago, the Missouri legislature actually did something a lot of people thought was good. Did I just stop you in your tracks <laughs> by saying that? Uh, they responded to complaints from prosecutors that they had no path to take action if they became aware of a wrongful conviction. So now we have a new statute allowing prosecutors to intervene in such cases. This statute is now being put to the test. That's due to the case of Mike Polite, who we've talked about a lot on this show. He was sentenced as a teen to life in prison for allegedly murdering his mother. He's always said he didn't do it. Last year, the Washington County prosecutor filed a motion to throw out his conviction using this new state law. The state attorney general fought back. He said that while the case was prosecuted by Washington County, it went to trial in St. Francis County. That's who would need to take action. The Missouri Supreme Court is now going to decide this, the Washington County prosecutor says if the AG prevails, the law will all but cease to function in rural counties. That's a, that's a quote there, um, because changes in venue are common there. Jennifer, do you think that's a fair concern? Yeah, well, I think the AG's wrong, and I have confidence that the Supreme Court's going to also agree with that statement. However, um, Change of venues are routine. They're almost a matter of course in, in smaller, smaller jurisdictions. Yeah, but to me, the AG's argument is uh, is incredibly flawed. I mean, that where the crime happened is you know all all you do when you change venue is is you get jurors from another county, same prosecutors, same you know everything else is the same. It makes no sense that just because the jurors came from St. Francis County that they should have. Uh, that 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 case that should be um, that that prosecutor should be able to do this doesn't make any sense at all. And I will say that the AG's office they never confess these. I mean they are to the mat on every single one, and I'm not sure I understand why. Because most of us realize that er, this is a human system. Everybody's a human being, and what do we know about human beings? You know, sometimes we get it wrong, and I think we have to be open to that possibility, particularly if you're in the AG's office. We do need to take a quick break, but we're going to continue this discussion when we come back. In fact, we have a number of really interesting cases ahead, including one you may have heard about involving a young man who was just sentenced to 16 life sentences for rape. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. 
I'm Sarah Fenske. I'm here today with our Legal Roundtable and just a host of really interesting topics to discuss today. I'm doing that with Eric Banks, who's a former city councilor for the city of St. Louis. He's now an attorney and mediator at Banks Law, also joined by Bill Freivogel, an attorney and professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and former St. Louis Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce. She held that job from 2001 to 2017. She's now with the consulting firm Vera Causa Group, LLC and is here sharing her knowledge about all matters related to the criminal justice system in Missouri. I've got one more I just need to get Jennifer's take on. A St. Louis County man was sentenced last week to 16 life sentences. Dominic Yako, 23 years old, a jury convicted him of nine counts of rape, six counts of sodomy, one count of attempted sodomy. He was actually acquitted on two counts of statutory sodomy. He was eligible for a life sentence because jurors deemed him a, quote, predatory sexual offender. And the Post-Dispatch is saying he won't be eligible for parole for 83 years. At that point, he'll be 106 years old. That is an eye-catching sentence, 16 life sentences. Jennifer, were you surprised to see that number? I I was, although I, I think, you know, reading the tea leaves here, I wasn't there, but I, I kind of... Un- have an idea what happened. Apparently, this this young man really troubled the judge in this case. And um, the judge, Judge Roboto, is a, before she got on the bench, was a very uh, effective, longtime criminal defense attorney. She was partners with Scott Rosenblum. So she would have normally defended a guy like this. Exactly. But, um, but she also has seen her share of criminals and people that maybe she felt uh, got in with a bad crowd and committed a crime and they could be rehabilitated. And then the stone sociopathic type of people that are that the community needs to be protected from. My sense is that after hearing the evidence in this case that she was uh, very troubled that this individual would get back out and commit a crime again. So she went to make sure that he never got back out. And it reminded me of the Southside Rapist case because I was on the team that prosecuted that case many years ago, and he had 80 victims. Um, and we, uh, in that case, he got five consecutive life sentences. Which is a lot. It's a lot, and, and it, he'll never get back out. But I don't understand the 16 and the math involved here and how he'll be eligible for parole in... 83 years. And maybe there's an explanation for it that somebody can share, but um, these are all, they sound to me like 85% crimes, which means you have to serve 85% of your sentence. And a life sentence is 30 years. So if you got 16 consecutive life sentences, that would be 16 consecutive, what, you know, 26 year, 26 year, 26 year. And that adds up to far beyond 83 years. So you think he could be doing even longer than, than what we're seeing in the paper here? He's, her objective clearly was that he die in prison. And I believe that no matter how you, you know, the DOC math always befuddles me um, and many other lawyers. But no matter how you slice it, that's that looks like what is likely going to happen to this 23-year-old man. So some parts of the criminal justice system seem to be coming around to the idea that even people who do terrible things can be rehabilitated. That, yeah, we don't want this guy out when he's in his 20s. We probably don't want him out in his 30s. But maybe when this guy is is 60 years old, that he deserves another chance. 
Um, Bill, do you think this sentence is overkill, that this guy is going to die behind bars? Well, it, it may be overkill, but, but I mean, he certainly didn't help himself with, I'm, I'm reading from the Post-Dispatch story here, he gave a long statement where he blamed the media were responsible for everything. Prosecutors, <laughs> you guys too, <laughs> investigators and victims. Uh, he said, I, I pray God will forgive you, your wicked ways. And, you know, he says this to a courtroom full of victims and their yeah. and, and their families. I mean, if I were the judge, I I, I might get yeah. be pretty pretty tough in my sentence. Yeah, I mean, this is it, no remorse, no remorse, and this is a terrible thing. But I'm also thinking this guy's 23 years old. There's a lot of people who are idiots when they're 23 years old, and I'm thinking about that case <laughs> involving Bobby Bostick that got so many headlines. You know, this was a young yeah. man who was caught up in something, and the judge got very angered because she felt that he didn't show remorse, and she has later done such a mea culpa. She right. helped him That's spring true. out of jail. So if this were TV, you'd see me shaking my head <laughs> vehemently here. Um, th this is not somebody who just did a dumb thing when they were a kid. You know, I'm the president of did a dumb thing when I was a kid club. Thank God there was no cameras and stuff. But this is not that. This is a sociopathic, psychopathic serial rapist who yeah. has is wired that way. I, I believe that that is what Judge Roboto saw in him. And that's not like going to change with maturity. Um, that's going to be there. And um, so my sense is if there was any judge that was going to give this guy a break because he did a dumb thing because he was young, it was the judge that he got, yeah. Judge Roboto. The fact that she sent this, I think, speaks volumes to me. Mm -hmm. Eric, do you want to disagree with Jennifer there, or you're, yeah? No, she said it quite eloquently. Everybody wants this guy in jail yeah. forever. Well, yeah. as somebody who has two young daughters, it's it's hard to argue with that. And there are just some bad people in the world That's right. that need to be put away. And you can't solve every problem. You can't cure everybody. Right. That's true. I'm going to pivot abruptly. We were talking about bad people. Um, we're now going to talk about the culture wars. <laughs> I'm not saying anyone here is a bad person, but we've talked about the lawsuit that election workers in Georgia filed against Jim Hoft. He is the St. Louis-based conspiracy-minded blogger behind the right-wing website The Gateway Pundit. Now, the poll workers that he unfairly implicated in this unfounded election stealing conspiracy theories. They ended up getting death threats. All sort of terrible things happened to these women. They sued him for libel. Well, he's now filed a counterclaim. Um, he alleges the suit is not an ordinary defamation case because it is intended to drive him, quote, out of business. It is a form of political warfare, he says. It lacks legal merit. We've got a counterclaim here. Eric, if this suit is in intended to drive him out of business, should that matter to the court? I don't see why it should. I mean, most high-stakes litigations will result in somebody losing the form. Yeah. There's going to be a winner. There's going to be a loser. So um, there's n this fella is no different than the thousands of people who interact with the civil system on a yearly basis. Yeah. And so he's going to have to take his chances in court. How does this counterclaim help him here? Bill, do you think this is going to be something where um, this gives him an upper hand? I guess I don't think so. I mean, it's a very unusual thing for the defendant in, in a defamation case to then sue the the other the, the 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 plaintiff for defamation, saying that the suit is itself the defamation. There's yeah, a, that's what that's what uh, the Gateway pundit is is claiming. Uh, and um, 
I, I don't I don't see how how it will help him, but it could. It, the the problem is it could put off sort of the day of his day of reckoning farther because th- that case the the original the the election workers suit against him was scheduled for trial in about a year, and uh, it, it might be that this will end up delaying that in some way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got another surprising legal tactic here that I want to pick the esteemed panel's uh, brains about. This stems from a tragic case in St. Louis County. There were two workers with the Missouri Department of Transportation killed in 2021 when a car plowed into them at 270 and Telegraph Road. The female MoDOT worker, Caitlin Anderson, she was six months pregnant when she was killed. Now, her family is suing MoDOT, and the state agency says the case has to go through the workers' compensation system, not the court system, because she was a state worker. Well, the family notes that Caitlin Anderson's fetus was also killed. She was six months pregnant. The state had an answer for that. They said the unborn baby, quote, would also fall under the definition of employee. Fox 2 Chris Hayes did a story about this and how absurd it seems. I always like to turn to Eric Banks when I'm talking about just matters of common sense. This seems kind of shocking to me that a six-month-old baby could fall under the definition of employee. Am I naive that I'm shocked by this? No, I agree. It's, um, it is a hard reach. The um, Department of Transportation's attorneys is reaching for every possible straw that is within his grasp. And um, he's just doing or she's just doing what attorneys do. Yeah. They're trying to keep this out of court is what they're doing. Yes. And so if they claim the six-month-old baby was a state employee, that's their route to saying you can't get this to court. Stranger things have happened. This is where people say the law just doesn't even make any sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Jennifer, any thoughts on on this very strange legal argument here? No. I... Can we go back to Geico? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. That's a less strange. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this just, it it seems like such a a sad case, and it seems like something that goes beyond the workers' compensation board. I mean, it turns out they didn't have a protective truck in place that day that would have protected this six-month pregnant woman. Isn't that something that a court should need to sort out? Yeah, I think it it is. And... uh, uh, I mean, to say that the fetus is a state worker is a little bit crazy. I mean, it's almost as crazy maybe as $5 million for car sex. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, you know, the workers' comp already had denied this family's claim because the, uh, Caitlin, who's the, the, mother, the mother who died, was not married and had no dependents. So it's, it's sort of, we got you coming and going. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's just wrong. I mean, they, they do have some liability here and that they didn't put the protective truck there. You know, that just, I hope that that argument doesn't carry the day. It would be nice to see justice for this family. This just seems like a devastating thing to lose somebody. She's doing her job six months pregnant and gets killed because she wasn't protected. So we just have a final couple of minutes here. But I want to bring attention to something that Tony Messenger of the Post-Dispatch wrote about. Arch City Defenders and the MacArthur Justice Center filed a class action lawsuit over the use of force in the St. Louis Justice Center. People being pepper sprayed, terrible things happening to the detainees there. They issued a preservation letter saying what records that they were interested in, telling the city not to destroy them. An assistant city attorney recently said in deposition the city doesn't have monthly use of forces from 2022 and that they regularly destroy videos of use of force incidents. 
what happens, Eric, if you just ignore a preservation letter? We're just going to destroy this stuff. The court has all kinds of sanctions they can impose. The uh, most um, strenuous one is to strike the pleadings. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you had the duty to prevent spoilation, and that's what it's called. You did not exercise your duty, and we're going to um, interfere with your ability to defend this lawsuit. When you say strike the pleadings, like you can't even share your side of the case at that point? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That seems extraordinary. Yeah, but, you know, I was an explanation offered as to why they disregarded the letter? That's something I haven't seen. Um, I know that the city's explanation is often like, you know, somebody messed up. Mm-hmm. Is that an explanation that a judge would take kindly to in your experience? Well, it might back him off of the most extreme striking the pleadings. But, um, yeah, I just I, I can't imagine why that would happen. Particularly, we're talking about the city councilor's office. These guys are civil lawyers. They do this all day, every day. They know the rules. Right. I mean, the uh, I noticed that Tony Messenger, who wrote the column about this, uh, hadn't gotten a response from the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I contacted Eddie Roth, who disclosed this. He was the assistant city attorney, right. yeah. Uh, who, who's a fr- you know, full disclosure is a friend of mine. And he referred me, you know, referred my <laughs> my email to him to uh, the city councilor's public affairs person. I haven't heard back from them. So, you know, they haven't explained themselves. They have not. Amy Bryan, who's the co-director of the MacArthur Justice Center, uh, she called the destruction, quote, shocking and disturbing. I can honestly say I've never encountered this level of evidence destruction in my entire career. We were talking earlier about a giant verdict against the city on a completely unrelated case, mass arrests, $5 million for rounding up protesters and beating them. Is this something where this could really increase the city's liability in this case and the taxpayers once again end up on the hook? Yes, it is. Yep. Well, you know, Tashara Jones was elected to keep this stuff from happening. Well, I mean, that's a really hard job when you have a bureaucracy this big. And she's finding out how hard it is. But, I mean, I think that was part of the reason a lot of people voted for her. Yeah. So I should add, um, you know, the the latest on this case. On Friday, the federal judge in this case granted in part an emergency motion ordering the city to preserve videos of chemical agents being used on people at the Justice Center, which this letter probably should have achieved that same effect. It seems like that might be a little too late. At least going forward, if someone pepper sprays somebody, we're going to have videos of that. Bill, should that put them on notice? Uh, Yes, (laughs) it should. Yeah, I mean... A federal judge, usually when they ask you to do something, that's it's always wise to follow through on that. Well, there's yeah, some... because you know what the difference is between God and the federal judge. Mm, what is God, that? God doesn't think she's a federal judge. <laughs> <laughs> now, Eric, this is a... <laughs> I, I'm going to listen to the federal judge. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the lesson of the day. Well... Yeah. Our legal roundtable, they have been filled with good advice today. I guess the good advice we're going to end on for the city's lawyers is let's not destroy any more of those the video evidence. Mm-hmm. I want to thank uh, Eric Banks for joining us today. Eric is a former city councilor himself for the city of St. Louis, an attorney and mediator at Banks Law. Eric, thank you for, for sharing your knowledge. Thank you. Um, also, Jennifer Joyce, former St. Louis circuit attorney. Uh, she's now with the consulting firm Vera Causa Group, LLC. Jennifer, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. And finally, last but not least, Bill Fry- Vogel, attorney and professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Thanks for joining us. Thanks.
This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski and Alex Hoyer. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.